This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 440 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Mandy Horvath. Now, Mandy has an incredibly powerful story with multiple chapters. Some are highs and some are absolute lows. And this is just one example of why you need to take the time to tell an entire story to understand the mental and physical challenges of an individual. So we discuss a host of topics from losing her legs in a train accident to climbing multiple peaks in Colorado using just her arms, overcoming addiction, the liberation of prosthesis, and so many other areas. 
Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mandy Horvath. Enjoy. Mandy, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I know we've been talking about this for a while. I know we were hoping to do it face to face, but obviously geography and this last year affected that and we'll definitely get into that. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Today I am in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Beautiful. It's a beautiful part of the world. It really is. I feel blessed to live in this little city below the America's mountain. Now, how how are your how is your area doing now in uh, in twenty twenty one after this last year? Are you coming out of it yourselves? Uh, yeah, things are definitely picking up in business and speed. Um, definitely see more people out right now, especially as the weather warms up. So, uh, the general consensus around here is the vaccine is going to save everything. So. <laughs> I just posted about that yesterday. <laughs> uh, it's quite interesting. We get a new president and suddenly the uh, coronavirus isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially it's funny because Colorado Springs in that area, um, I was in Golden a couple of years ago. That's a very healthy population too and a very outdoorsy population. So I would say probably a very resilient population that shouldn't have to worry as much about the vaccine because most of your men and women are probably pretty resilient to this virus. Uh, most, but it is similar to Florida in that it's quite a retirement state and we get snowbirds. So, um, worrying about our older population has probably been most important up here. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's just it. You know, we have, we have, uh, populations that are at risk. And so the more of us that are younger and healthier that don't add to that burden, the more resources can be poured into the ones that actually need it. Yep. All right. Well, then I love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Uh, I was born in Liberty, Missouri and grew up in North Kansas City for about 12 years of my life before moving to Smithville, Missouri. I have uh, a younger little brother. His name is Maverick. And both of my parents um, are factory workers. Uh, they actually met as truck drivers. <laughs> my dad was a diesel mechanic and my mother was getting ready to rig up and drive across the States. And they ended up doing team driving and I was conceived somewhere in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautiful story in a very blue collar way. It really is. Um, you know, they, they worked for the Kansas City Harley-Davidson manufacturing plant for over 20 years until it closed its doors um, a couple years back now, which was quite the event in my family. Um, you know, Harley-Davidson was always very uh, encompassing of our family dynamic. Um, 
not that my parents were into the biking or anything like that, but uh, it was just the plant was kind of like an additional family for my brother and I. And uh, so, yeah, I moved to Smithville and middle school. And um, the difference is, is I went from being in an urban setting uh, downtown or not downtown, but off Parvin Road in Kansas City. You know, I was supposed to go to Winnetonka High School, uh, all the way up to this rural community where you're surrounded by a lake and a bunch of woods. And I had been an avid outdoorsman um, throughout my childhood, you know, being out in the shop with my father. And we would always go fishing <clears throat> and foraging for mushrooms. And after we moved to Smithville, got to kind of incorporate hunting more so in my life. Um, <clears throat> and that's kind of how we fed the family because we were not necessarily well off and it was much cheaper to process um, animals that we had hunted ourselves than it was to go out to the store and buy this expensive beef. So it was a, it was a very holistic childhood. Um, my parents had relationship issues growing up, but uh, they overcame that and ended up getting married. They're still married and living in the same house uh, out there in Smithville. So it's quite interesting. Um, you know, my mother is now painting truck beds, and my father is back to work with Chris Shipley excavating. And everything seems all right for them. So. All right. Well, then, before we go back into your childhood, one of the areas that we talk about quite a bit here is when when someone's forced from their tribe now whether it's the military whether it's the fire service whether it's harley davidson it, it's it's an adjustment sometimes if that's all you've known and that was your you know your band of brothers and sisters whatever it is how did they how did they or the town in general do after that that um, plant was closed um a lot of things changed in kansas city uh, I've noticed even since going back, it, it's not quite the same for me and my family, but it's not the same for thousands of other people in Kansas City. Many moved out and went down to Wichita to work uh, in aviation or, um, you know, my mother's working with her old plant manager. They're painting truck beds. So uh, it was just incredibly disheartening because they were let in on a random day and told that they were meeting up and uh, essentially told that the plant doors were closing and the severance package obviously wasn't anything to really sustain my parents for a period of time that was acceptable, especially with COVID coming right around the door. Um, so it's been a struggle for them this year financially, but they're, they're pulling through. And it's been that way for a lot of people um, across the United States, not just in Kansas City. So Yeah, well, I think that's an important you know, insight is when I had this with my, my previous wife. Her father worked for Georgia Pacific, which is the wood and paper company. And it was the same thing, you know, and, and they were just, you know, one day they showed up and they're right, you don't have a job. And when they've put in decades of their life for a company and then they're just cut away like that. I, I think personally, I think that's disgusting and people 
there's there's the financial element, but people don't understand the the, the mental health and emotional and, and relationship strains that come from that decision as well. Yeah. My mother was especially affected by this. Uh, my father's always been the kind that he has two or three jobs going on top of working at Harley. He would generally work for Chris Shipley during the day. So it wasn't so much of an effect on him, but I definitely saw a decrease in my mother's mental health and well-being. Um, it, it took her almost a year to get back to work just because she lacked in confidence so much. Um, this this job at Harley was her life and she, she put everything she had into it for years and years and years. And whenever it went away, it really affected her, but she got a couple puppies and now she's back to work. So, um, she's doing much better with it. And you're absolutely right. It, it it's quite a toll. It's quite a toll. Yeah. Well, so speaking of your childhood, you know, when, when we get through this conversation, there's going to be some very, very dark, periods in your life and I find a correlation with people that have found themselves in a very dark place not so much with an event and obviously you had a very traumatic event but also prior to that you know especially in the more kind of formative years so when you look back were there element any elements of your childhood that now with all the kind of mental health and addiction knowledge that you have you would contribute to some of the trauma that that was piled on later in life? Uh, 100%. As I briefly mentioned, um, my parents had relationship issues whenever I was growing up. Um, my father wasn't always the nicest gentleman. And um, my brother and I kind of suffered through that. Uh, whenever we were kids and living in North Kansas City, my father couldn't really decide what bed he wanted to lay in. And so over the course of four years, he moved out nine times and came back 10. And I know that because I was the one to help carry his stuff out every time while my parents fought and um, making sure that my brother was safely put away. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a fun time for me. And I was very established there in Kansas City. And moving to Smithville really sucked. It really sucked. Um, I spent my entire life there in this little community that I was very well established in. And I, I really struggled with that, that change. Um, I was very active in our orchestra there in North Kansas City. And Mr. Frizey took um, additional care in teaching me to the point where I would take my cello to regional competitions and XYZ and uh, all of that kind of stopped for me whenever we moved to Smithville. My dad informed me that um, he had already talked to the band instructor and I would be playing saxophone. <laughs> you know, um, it wasn't really like a choice for me. It wasn't um, a lot of my opportunity, I feel, fell off whenever we moved to Smithville. I remember my first day. We were so poor um, growing up that I I dressed the part and I had my favorite pair of baggy blue sweat pants and uh, whatever. <laughs> but I remember my first day at Smithville there and going in to sit in my TA class and sitting next to Jasmine Mercer, who's covered head to toe in Hollister and just looked at me like I was disgusting. And it 
it truly affected me being in a different kind of culture that I wasn't prepared for. Um, most of my seventh grade year was, and I had been a straight A student my entire life up until this point, but most of my seventh grade year was failing classes until I had a teacher who took me under her wing, Miss Lawler, and she took me out to her horse stables and put me to work. And so that kind of got me back into where I needed to be. Um, she uh, was a blessing to me in many ways. But going into high school, um, my parents still had relationship issues there at home, but they were married. And I quickly learned that the fastest way out of the house was to immerse myself in my academic work. And so at the age of 16, with honors, um, I graduated high school. Really? Two years early? Yes. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I had a really great agriculture teacher named Mr. V. Brock who pushed me along and kind of warned me, you know, you might not want to graduate early. It might not be the best choice, but it might be the best way to get out. And it was. But being 16 and out on your own uh, isn't necessarily the best thing either. <laughs> I, I started out um, working for Dr. Deem at the animal clinic because I was the youngest graduate in Missouri to be um, awarded by veterinary technician certification. I actually got that while I was in high school through um, our agriculture department. I was also heavily involved uh, with color guard, winter guard, band, <laughs> track, anything that would pull me out of the house. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I worked full time right out of high school and it ended up saving me today because my disability income is based off the income that I made prior. Um, I worked full time, I worked my butt off. Uh, and I quickly decided that the veterinary field wasn't for me. I'm a bit too compassionate, I feel. I, um, I didn't so much care about money whatsoever, which isn't a uh, great business standpoint to take whenever you're working in that field. And so I... <laughs> got started working at the Brick House in Smithville, which is a little bar, and I was working back in the kitchen as a dishwasher. And I didn't know how to cook a damn thing. <laughs> uh, anything. My mother was not the best cook growing up, so we ended up having goulash spaghetti or Godfather's pizza every night. <laughs> but one night, um, Chef Jonathan Justice, he ran this Justice drugstore across the street from the Brick House, and it's a five-star uh, Michelin restaurant. And he was very well known in our community as being one of the top chefs in Kansas City. One night, he came over to the Brick House to play some pool, and I decided to challenge him and make a bet with him. <laughs> so we got up. And I told him, hey, if I win this game, you've got to teach me how to cook from scratch everything you know. And if you win, I'll come work at your restaurant for free for two weeks. That's quite um, a bet. 
But it's one of the only times in my life that I ever got up to the table and I ran it. Um, and he got quite upset, slammed his pool stick down. And as he was walking out the door, he said, one o'clock tomorrow, don't be late. Needless to say, I was not late. <laughs> um, I spent the next couple years diving into the culinary industry and earning my chef's jacket and really learning from one of the best uh, chefs in the industry. He is an incredible person. He and Camille took me under their wing because of, obviously, as I had said, I was, you know, 16, 17 at now at this age, but I had also acquired a fake ID and um, I was going to the bars every night. I was also uh, experimenting with different various drugs. And <laughs> um, one night I was in his kitchen experimenting with said drugs after a work shift and I had cut myself with my knife as I was slicing brisket and he comes over to this hand washing sink and he goes you know I can see you and I was like yes chef I'm aware and he goes you know my customers behind you can see you too and I said yes chef I'm aware he goes go to the back room I'm gonna have the maitre d take you out to the hospital but then you're gonna come back here and we're gonna have a talk and I'm thinking, you know, um, I've just lost my job. And I loved this job. I worked I worked very hard from 1 o'clock in the afternoon to sometimes 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I loved this job. And I come back and he goes, you know, you have a lot to offer the world, but not like this. And so I'm going to give you one of two options. You can move in with Camille and I, and you can work on the farm, go to work, work on the farm, go to sleep, repeat, or you can find another job. And so uh, Chef Jonathan Justice and Camille, they took me under their wing, and I ended up living with them for about a year and working on the farm and going into the restaurant on a consistent basis. And after I had kind of grown in that establishment, I decided that I wanted to spread my wings and move out to Kansas. Um, there was another chef that I had become close to and I wanted to be closer to him. <laughs> and so I moved out to Manhattan, Kansas, and I found a job at Four Olives Wine Bar. And I still had my fake ID. I was still very much going to the bars every night. Um, so I feel like my experimentation with drugs quickly turned to alcoholism um, in the culinary industry, especially um, especially after moving out to Kansas and kind of separating myself from Smithville and Missouri in general. So out in Manhattan, Kansas, where I lived, I didn't really have a whole lot except for that little job. And I got asked to leave from that job because of my drinking. Um, and so I moved out to Marysville, Kansas, which is a little further north. And I got a job there. And I was working for the Landall Corporation as a cook at one of their establishments. And I met some new people and I had started you know, gaining friends and whatever else. I'd, I'd lived with one of my bosses, actually. And one night, I um, 
had met a gentleman in the uh, Landall restaurant, and his name was Dan, and uh, he took a liking to me and I to him. We got pretty close pretty fast over the course of a couple weeks, and so one night, whenever he had asked me if I wanted to go out to a concert, I said, sure. And um, then the plan changed to, uh, we're actually going to go camping. And so we go out to Steel City, Nebraska. And uh, we were playing pool, uh, obviously drinking. The only thing in Steel City, Nebraska is a little bar, a uh, post office across the street, and um, a big set of train tracks. And it was, I guess, roughly two o'clock in the morning after having two beers and two shots throughout the entire duration of the evening. I stepped outside to have a cigarette, and that's when the world went black. I regained consciousness in an ambulance, and I could not really see who was standing above me because of the light, but they were slapping me as hard as they could, um, begging me to stay with them, um, to come back to consciousness, to just hold on a little bit until the helicopter arrived. And uh, being who I am, I'm very stubborn. I was very fit and <laughs> active. So I tried to sit up on what I now know as a gurney. <laughs> and that's whenever I was pushed back down and, you know, kept slapping me. Stay with us. Stay with us. You're, you're, you're going to pull through this. The helicopter's almost here. And I said, I'm, I'm going home. I don't know what's going on, but I'm going home tried sitting up again and he slammed me back down this time started strapping on a cervical collar and it was at that point he had informed me ma'am I'm really going to need you to calm down and stay with us you have just lost your limbs your legs and I was in shock at this point I still in disbelief I had not realized what had happened yet and so being the stubborn individual that I am, I lifted my lower half of my body and started to kick. And that's whenever I realized how light it was and all of the blood. And reality set in. He and the other paramedics um, got my legs tied down and started applying the tourniquets. I was still being slapped across the face very hard, but it was at that point that I faded out and I died for the first time. I died again in life light, and I died again on the surgery table at Brian West Medical Center in Lincoln, Nebraska, as Dr. David Samani and Dr. Reginald Burton worked uh, tirelessly into the morning to get me stabilized. So it was uh, quite the event. And, you know, it's seven years on, and that's still the only memories that I have of that event. I have no recollection of how I ended up on train tracks at 2.30 in the morning. I have no recollection of what happened directly after that. Um, all I have is that 
fading in and out of consciousness in the ambulance. I, <laughs> as I was kind of telling you before we jumped on this podcast, I, I do suffer from um, phantom limb syndrome now, but m- more so than that, I guess um, I suffer from some kind of insomnia now. Um, it's kind of chosen. I try to avoid REM sleep because oddly enough, um, it's very eerie to dream of wet rocks every night and know that it's your blood. <laughs> it definitely affects you. Um, you know, it took six nurses to hold me down whenever I came out of my medically induced coma and I had no idea what was going on. Um, they had written me off as suicide. And my family and I um, really soon began to realize that that wasn't at all what had happened. Me especially. (laughs) I know that that's not what had happened. But um, the date that I was with that night, he came to continue and visit me in the hospital And it was one day sitting outside of this hospital. Um, My mother, man, the fierce woman she is, she looked at him as we were sitting outside. And she goes, so are you going to finally fucking tell us why you're telling the cops one thing and you're telling my family another? Um, He was from Dillard, Nebraska, and he was apparently very close friends with a lot of the law enforcement out there. And so my mother and I were trying to get my case reopened. And we feel like because he was still alive, that was part of why they would not reopen it. In fact, it is seven years to this day that I still have not ever seen a police report. I believe that it was definitely shoved under the rug. It wasn't until um, November, around November of that year, that I was um, admitted into Madonna Rehab Facility, and the train conductor for Union Pacific was allowed to release his statement to me and my family. He and his wife and his uh, kids came to meet me, and that is when he told me that he was going around the bend at about 45, 50 mile an hour at 2.30 in the morning. Um, He had crested around the corner there in Steel City, Nebraska, when he came across me, and he thought I was a mannequin. Apparently, it's a common prank to play on train conductors in rural communities, After he hit me, he realized I definitely was not a mannequin. And he slammed on the brakes to uh, see if he could do anything to help me. So obviously, coal trains don't stop on a dime. Um, He got the train stopped, but as he was turning down out of the engine room he said that he took two steps clicked on his flashlight and turned to get down off of the train whenever he received a tap on his shoulder 
And he turned around and his flashlight met the face of my date from that night. And he said, what are you doing here, man? Why'd you stop? And he goes, I think I hit somebody and I don't have time for this. And he took off to go and find me. But my date said something along the lines of, I hope it's not Mandy. The train conductor found me pulling myself out from underneath the eighth coal car, and I had apparently Superman flipped myself over. Um, and he had gotten me, I guess, stabilized or to the point where I was not losing enough blood so that paramedics could arrive um, and I could be properly taken care of. And so I owe a lot of my, um, my life to him. Um, it was just, uh, really traumatic for both of us. I, um, I don't much talk to him anymore. However, in the earlier years, I did, uh, keep in touch with him and his family. And he struggled with this just as much, if not more, than I did. Um, he had a lot of survivor's guilt and felt uh, responsible for what had happened to me. And I, you know, it, it was a big thing for me to assure him that it definitely was not. I never went out after the railway company or anybody, um, anybody regarding this incident. Uh, mostly because, like I said, it's been seven years and I still have not seen a police report. See, that's, that's just crazy. I mean, when you think about, like you said, if, if, if you had a, a road that when you look back, you know, there were, there were suicide ideation, ide uh, suicide attempts, you know, then that'd be one thing. But if it's uh, an unknown element, especially in an environment where we know, things like Rohypnol are out there, for example, then I I find that so hard not to believe. I, I find it so unusual that they wouldn't open it. Why would you not reopen that and just allow more investigation? Um, I, I could probably tell you why, but I, <laughs> I lack the uh, gracious verbiage for putting that into words, my you friend. You don't need gracious verbiage on this podcast, so you can just say it as it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel like there's plenty of snakes in the grass and lots of things got shoved under the rug. You know, in November of that year, I was being checked in for an emergency surgery when I got a phone call from a mutual friend of um, my date and I's that night. And... Um, I was informed that he had shot himself. Now, why I was told he shot himself, I don't know. But um, come to find out, he here's, here's an interesting thing, my friend. Um, he's a heavy equipment operator. And the coroner fought for an accidental death. He was found in a garage in a truck and he had asphyxiated carbon monoxide poisoning. They ruled that as an accident. So 
Let's back up a second. I'm a product of two truck drivers, right? My dad's a diesel mechanic, right? You want to know one of the first things he taught me? Don't have your car in the garage with the door closed. Yeah. So tell me how a heavy equipment operator accidentally, accidentally didn't know this. So where did the report of him shooting himself come from then, if that was how he... That was just from a girl um, that we both mutually knew. And why she told me that he shot himself, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I've since confronted her about it. And she's like, I didn't know. I was just so frantic. I found out that he had died. And I was like, you know, that's kind of vitally important before you go and come to me and talk to me like that. But that's besides the point. Um, I, I approached his sister and I had asked about what had actually happened and she made a spiel about how it was peaceful and an accident. <clears throat> yeah. So, well, so leading up to that point, and I'm so glad that you walked us down your path. So thank you. Because so you've got someone who was a straight A student that had had some issues in the past, you know, and still overcome them. So mentally, you know, you'd, you'd achieved a lot physically. You were an athlete, you were a musician, um, you know, you found yourself at this point, um, you know, lying there post railroad incident. So from a, an, uh, a, a high achieving woman, what was that next few months for you like physically? And then also what was it like for you mentally? Physically, it's, it's hard to describe. I lived in the hospital. Unlike a normal amputee, they could not just sew me up. Um, I had too much swelling going on. And I had holes, massive gaping holes in my legs. And so I was deemed a good candidate for a product called A-cell stem cell, which is dried pig's bladder mixed with stem cells in powdered form. And so every Tuesday and Friday, I would go through debridement surgeries and they would apply this powder. And it was meant to regenerate muscle, skin, and tissue growth. It did a fantastic job. But as I had said before, in November of that year, I was being checked in for my first emergency surgery to be re-amputated. I was re-amputated on my other leg on Christmas Day of that year. Uh, very, very painful physically. Um, the re-amputation more so than the initial amputation because there was no medically induced coma cushion. Not to mention that, but after re-amputation, they did just sew me up instead of going through all of the healing process that goes on um, with the A-cell product. And from that, I had actually ripped out all of my staples on both legs. And so they had to go back in and sew them up again. And I ended up getting an infection, which cost me another three, four weeks in the hospital. Uh, physically, very, very painful, very tiring. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still amazed at how well my body recovered. And I am absolutely grateful and thankful for the medical team that I had there at Ryan West Lincoln, uh, especially Dr. David Samani. He saved my life. Um, and bigger than that, um, I'm, I'm blessed because I, I have the ability to use my prosthesis now 
And that's because he <laughs> he saved as much of my residual limbs as he could, and he did so aesthetically. So uh, I'm very blessed in the those little avenues. Um, mentally, incredibly difficult. Um, not only did I just lose my legs, but at the beginning there, I was trying to figure out what exactly had happened more so than I was trying to heal. And especially after um, he had incidentally died, I, I pulled my surgeon and um, his PA in the room and I said, you guys need to get me down to mental health because I don't know, I don't even know what life is about anymore. <sighs> and so I, I spent a couple weeks um, in the hospital inside the mental health ward um, getting on some medications there to help me out with depression and anxiety and um, everything else. Obviously, I was also on a very high um, opioid pharmaceutical load, and that caused a lot more issues with my mental health um, as far as irritability and anger. And uh, <laughs> Of course, I had this onset of PTSD going on for me as well. <clears throat> so... It was a lot to work through, but it, it, it was just a very slow process. Now, you said um, the reamputation. Was that after that bone growth from the stem cell, or was that prior to that? Yes. So I can't exactly 100% attribute the um, bone regeneration on, from the ASL stem cell, but I do believe that that is what happened. Um, just because I had holes in my legs that you could reach up and stick three fingers and touch my bone. I, I do believe that it got attached to the bone and started to um, regenerate that bone. And so I became less than 0.0% of all amputees, 0.1% of all amputees worldwide that experience osteoregeneration. And it, oh, uh, it was painful just to go through. Uh, just imagine... Imagine losing a limb and then having awesome growing pains on top of that. Um, very painful in the regrowth um, and very, very painful in the reamputation process as well. So, but, but, so when you had the initial um, surgery done, then mentally you're thinking, okay, I'm on my way to healing, to prostheses, and then you have this reamputation that sets you back yet again. Yeah. I, I was severely affected by that, that setback. Um, my surgeon, he knew that I was very ambitious. And so despite his um, warnings, I, you know, begged him essentially for permission to get into a set of prosthesis. Um, and so before I was even healed, before I actually had healthy skin all the way around my residual limbs, I was up walking on them. Uh, I was trying my best and my hardest, and um, so whenever that got canned, I guess, <laughs> I, I, I went into a very dark depression. I ended up gaining a lot of weight. I, I was very, very, very sad. <laughs> not, not a very happy person. Um, so most of um, 2015 was just a drudge for me. 
Uh, I had gone to a primary care physician and got some blood work done and she called me back um, and she was very concerned. She was like essentially letting me know that my liver and kidneys were going to start shutting down. Um, I was on 22 different medications a day, sometimes more often than not. I took those multiple times a day. Um, Most of them were of opiate um, or symptom treating. It, it just it got way out of hand, and I was prescribed all of it trying to keep up with the phantom limb pain that I experienced. And I was basically given the choice of putting myself through rehab or dying the first time, you know? Or not the first time for dying, but... Um, the first time I went through rehab was just to help my body get off of the opiate load that it was on. And I completed that program in August of 2015 at Atchison Valley Hope. And I was doing okay, a lot better, I suppose. I was in a lot of pain. And I had reacquainted with somebody that lived out here in Colorado Springs. And so by January of 2016, I had decided to move to Colorado Springs, which opened up a new realm of opportunity for me as far as um, pain management was concerned, as Colorado has legalized medicinal marijuana. Um, It's really changed and saved my life. So if you don't mind, let's expand on that because that's something that doesn't get a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, I guess airtime for lack of a better word, but you're on these opiates and as a firefighter, a paramedic, you know, I've sadly, I've, I've seen a lot of people succumb to that, to the you know, overdose of opiates. So how, how did that factor in and tell me about the weaning process? How, how was that marijuana use you individually? How did that? attribute to your pain and how did it help you get off these these uh, very dangerous opiates that you were on oh gosh i mean and when i'm talking about opiates i mean i was prescribed dilaudid fentanyl uh oxycontin oxycodone uh, you know anything that would try to kind of dull that neuro- neuropathy pain that i experienced with the phantom limb syndrome which uh if you know anything about it there's not really a way to attack that with a pharmaceutical. Um, not that I have found. I was on Neurontin as well um, and Gabapentin. Um, just ridiculous amounts of both of those uh, drugs, and it didn't do me any good. In fact, I weighed 150 pounds when I moved to Colorado Springs. And so whenever I was given this um, grand opportunity to start utilizing medicinal marijuana in my daily life. I, I, <laughs> I used to have a journal <clears throat> that I would write down the strains and uh, the different qualities and what it, it did for me uh, and helped me with because not only was I experiencing a lot of pain with phantom limb syndrome, you know, I have uh, PTSD symptoms going on and um, sleep deprivation issues and I mean, it was just, it was really out of hand. And so being able to uh, focalize 
what I need to feel better um, through a plant, ingesting a plant, really, uh, it, it night and day. I mean, now I weigh roughly 70 pounds. I mean, before I lost my limbs, I weighed 115. I, I directly attribute most of the weight gain to the medications that I was on. That's an important point. So you were 150 pounds, obviously, you know, stating the obvious, minus your two legs. So that doesn't sound like a lot of weight. But for you, from your kind of knees up, that was that was a significant weight gain. Yeah, yeah I, I, I kind of joke about it. And I was like, I don't know if you know what that looks like, but it looks like a sack of potatoes in a wheelchair. And uh, it was not a good time for me mentally as far as how I was feeling about myself and everything else. But through medicinal marijuana, I was able to manage my pain, manage some of my symptoms much better than I was on a pharmaceutical load. And from that, I mean, my life began to change in the early start of 2017 when I was actually really established um, out here by myself. So it, it was good. It was a long road, though. <laughs> so, so you had the the marijuana. Were any other things that helped you turn that corner initially in 2017? Um, no, not really. I mean, I I had a relationship fizzle out that um, was quite abusive, and I ended up being ordered by a judge to. Um, leave town for a couple months uh, because I was being stalked and harassed from one side of the city to the next. And so whenever I came back, um, this was at the end of 2017, I would like to say, whenever I came back in 2018, I would say that was when things really started to change for me. Um, I went down to Orlando, Florida for the first time, and I met up with uh, Shane Hugs, who is a veteran, and he is also a scuba certified paddy, scuba science, sorry, he is a paddy scuba certified instructor, <laughs> and so I was supposed to get my scuba certification and get to go scuba diving but um a couple days after i had gotten down there uh he woke up and he was just he's like i can't feel the left side of my body i need to go to the va um and so he had been uh, a victim of shrapnel impact to his spine his lower spine uh over in afghanistan i believe and so here I was, I didn't really have any peer support, but or peer support experience, I should say. But um, I ended up being there with him in the hospital uh, the end of 2017. And that's whenever the doctor came back and she uh, let us know that it was actually a tumor that would have to be removed um, from his spinal column, which is obviously a very dangerous um, and precarious surgery. And so I was there for him on New Year's Day whenever they went in 
and um, they removed the spinal tumor. I was the only one he would allow in the waiting room because he didn't want his family waiting and worrying. Um, so I became kind of the middle ground liaison through that event. And the nurse came back to get me, and um, she's like, hey, he's awake, but there's been some developments in his um, his ability to feel, and so I'm going to need you to come back here uh, immediately. And I went back there, and it was at that point I was <laughs> being a peer support for my friend who had just woken up without the use of his limbs <laughs> from the waist down. Um, as he's much better now, <laughs> but uh, it was a really impactful moment for me um, being there and getting to watch him pull through the way that he did. It was just a really strong individual. He can't feel anything, but he still walks. He's down in Colombia right now building a village. Really? <laughs> yes. And I mean, he's got a hotel over in Africa that he uh, works with several organizations. He does incredible things with the world. And so I'm just really grateful to continue to watch this man grow um, in our communities. He's probably somebody else I should get you hooked up with to have on your podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that was the beginning of my 2018. I, but I, you know, this really affected me. I went down there to go on my first vacation away from a, a pretty dangerous situation here in Colorado. And uh, it, it didn't quite turn out that way. In fact, uh, I, it affected me drastically mentally I was very angry with whoever's pulling the strings <laughs> you know um yeah. uh so I returned back to Colorado I was drinking heavily very heavily I was very depressed and I just barely made it through the edge of winter and spring started to come around and I'd made this large post on social media asking people to go and uh, support me doing the incline, the Manitou incline. And uh, I guess for those that don't know what the Manitou incline is, it's a old railway that leads up the side of a mountain. It's 2,744 some railroad ties that lead um up 2,000 foot in elevation gain in just under a mile. And so I had a lot of uh, incredulous responses to that. Like, how are you, How do you think you're going to do this? Uh, a oh, lot of people. People were really behind you, banding together, encouraging you. No. <laughs> God forbid people actually get behind someone who lost both their legs that wants to do something amazing. Uh, I pretty much got told I was crazy and trying that would be a death sentence. Um, and I got very discouraged by that. You know, I had talked to anybody that would listen about it. I talked to people in bars. I talked on social media. Um, 
anything you can think of. I was doing live videos like, hey, come do the incline with me. I want to try it. No response, nothing. And the response that I did get was not not very kind. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I came to a point in my life where I was just over it. And on April 22nd of 2018, I drove my car up to the Eagle's Nest Mountains. I left provisions for my dogs down at the bottom of the mountain, and I had no intentions of coming back down. I went up with a loaded 45. Uh, when I got up to the point, there was a truck with a couple in it, obviously, getting their Saturday night vibes on. And I was not wanting to interrupt that with what I had going on. And as I sat there waiting, I fell asleep. And I woke up, and then the truck was gone. I've got this loaded gun on my lap. And the sun is cresting up through the peaks of the mountains and the trees, just over this large boulder. And it's in my eyes. And I'm a little pissed off that I'm even awake. But uh, it was... 7.30 in the morning, I think, and my phone dings, and I'm like, okay, what, the, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's this old gentleman that I used to drink with at Coach's Sports Bar, and he says, hey, uh, were you still wanting to go do the incline? It looks like it's going to be a beautiful day. And it wasn't Five minutes after that, I got a message from some random guy on Instagram named Daniel Pond, and he said, hey, if you still want to do that today, I'll meet you over there. Didn't even know him. And so I went over to the incline in my jeggings and a pair of bike gloves, and I started crawling. And I summited about 7 o'clock at night, and I took a few photos, had the guys carry me down far trail the first time because it was so late, and then I ended up going to a little townhouse down in Manitou and had a beer with Keith, went home, and went to sleep. Now, just to, to inter interject for a second, the, the number of people I've had on this podcast that have found themselves in that place, whether they actually, you know, attempted it and survived, whether they were going to and something, um, you know, stopped them, there's always a pivotal figure. And that pivotal figure is just someone who cared, someone who showed up. And when I heard you tell this, this on another podcast, it was, it was that again. Like you put this post up and sadly, if you, if you put a, I, I talk about this a lot, but if you put a video of a cat on a skateboard, you would have probably had a million likes. But when you put something meaningful, I have the same thing. It happens to me all the time. Then it's, it's fucking no response whatsoever. But we just need to show up. We just need to look around for people that are going through something 
And all we got to do is just see them. All we got to do is say, are you okay? All we got to do is show up. So kudos to those two men that just showed the fuck up. And, and I don't know if they know or not, I don't know if you told them, but they saved your life that day, which is just incredible. Oh, they know. Um, they know. Daniel Pond is still um, a very, very close friend of mine. And, um, you know, it wasn't that big of a, a deal to me. You know, nobody believed that I could do it. And so after I did it, I didn't even post about it until the next day. <laughs> I was just like, all right, well, you know, here's my middle finger. I can do it. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And it kind of spun out from there. Here was this depressed girl who was battling alcoholism, PTSD, and um, mental disparities. And I, in the next week, was contacted by every media affiliate between here and Denver. You were on the BBC. When I, when I did some research and, before we did this, you were on the British News. Yes, every, everywhere. Um, everywhere. And so I really had no idea what to do with that. I mean, I grew up in little Missouri. You know, I got turkeys on my wall back here. <laughs> I can see them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it was a struggle for me getting acclimated to that kind of level of attention. I ended up changing my major in college uh, just to really get uh, a better <laughs> better idea of what I need to be doing because uh, there's no turning back after something like that. It wasn't the first time that I had gone viral, nor would it have been the last because just a month later, um, that same gentleman from Instagram, Daniel Pond, he uh, he was my mountaineer that got me up Pikes Peak the first time um, from the base of the Manitou Incline all the way the 13 miles of Bar Trail. So let me ask you this just to interject for a second. So you were an athlete prior to the accident um, and then obviously you went all through this stuff. What was your mindset? Because there would have been a lot of people in your position that could, couldn't finish the incline, couldn't finish Pike's Peak. So what was it? What was the self-talk? What was the, the kind of grit that you had that got you to the top? As I stated in a, a little bit prior clip, um, whenever I was growing up, I used to forage a lot. Um, for mushrooms specifically, and morel mushrooms there in Missouri. And um, I, I was mushroom hunting before I could walk. And after my amputations in the spring of uh, 2015, even though I weighed as much as I did, I, I stayed with my parents for a short time. So this chokes me up. <laughs> Sorry. Don't apologize. Um, I stayed with them before I moved out to Colorado Springs, and they bought a gorilla cart 
and they put me in this damn gorilla cart and they carted me out a mile out through this cornfield just so that I could crawl around and look for mushrooms. And then my mother became affiliated with uh, Rudy Bears, who's a USC fighter that worked at Harley-Davidson. And he's invited me to come and work out with his crew. He treated me like one of his family. And it was one day, it, it was a really, really pivotal moment in my entire story of coming to learn how to climb and whatever else. But I was still f- overweight and in class and everybody was starting to run for the warm up. And coach looked at me and he goes, hey, why are your ass cheeks touching this mat right now? (laughs) (laughs) Run on your arms. And that is really where it all started. Um, It was a love for the outdoors combined with figuring out that I can do it on my arms. Um, And incredible people that pushed me to believe in that. Um, I, to be quite honest with you, had no real idea what I was getting into with the Manitou incline. I had just seen other cool pictures. (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) Um, I had no real idea what I was getting into the first time I did the mountain. Uh, and I paid for that. I, that was a brutal climb. The first time it was brutal. It was very hard. Um, Daniel Pond was a great source of inspiration and everybody that I met along the trail, as well as the keepers of Bar Camp and um, the experience itself, getting to see the wildlife out there. Um, I think one of the biggest moments of my life that I won't ever misplace in memory is the first time I reached the A-frame. It's three miles from the summit, but it's on the edge of the timberline, and it's just a little lean-to shelter on the edge of this clearing, and there's wildflowers everywhere because it was June. And I remember thinking that nothing in life can get better than this. You know, I was... Even though I was exhausted because the the hardest part of Bar Trail, um, in my opinion, (laughs) coming from somebody that literally has to feel the ground, is from Bar Camp up to the A-frame, just because it's so boulderous. And even though I was so exhausted, I was crawling around in this tall grass, smelling all the wildflowers, just having a heyday. And uh, there was a little care package that was left up there for us. And it had a damn Snickers bar in it. And it saved my life that night. Um, You know, I summited it the next day. And the paper article reads at the top, massive hailstorm pummels Colorado. And I'm right below it. Uh, Double amputee summits Pikes Peak. And it was like three o'clock in the morning. 
up at the A-frame and my phone started going off and um, it woke both Daniel and I up and it's people down in Colorado Springs begging to know that we're okay because they are just getting ravaged with this hailstorm. But um, luckily we were above the clouds, so I've actually got some footage of this really cool hailstorm up above the clouds um, the night before my summit. And it, it is just an incredible, incredible, definitely hands down one of the best days of my life. Um, a massive accomplishment for me, but just being able to share with other people that um, it, it is doable. It just takes a lot of, a lot of grit <laughs> to get there. Um, it's just overall an experience that can't be um, can't be taken from me and something I value very much. Well, that's a hell of a metaphor, too. I mean, you think of the hail being all the shit that you were dealing with before, and through your determination, you basically rose above it. Yeah, yeah. We were up there listening to John Moreland, um, and it's very metaphorical to me. So. Beautiful. Well, so you had those accomplishments. However, right before the first of the two, you had been sitting there with a pistol. So, as healing as those must have been, as 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 um as uplifting as they must have been, you still had those things that were unaddressed. So, after that, like you know, what was that that inner turmoil, that mental health battle, and the addiction element? How did that pay out? You know, as you were going through all these things. Well, you know, it's not like the alcoholism had a start and stop point throughout this. It was during. I mean, if you go back through my older interviews, unfortunately, and I can hear this now too, and it just makes me shake my head. Um, I'm slurring my words, you know. You can tell that I've been drinking. Um, my face is swollen and puffy. It, it just it wasn't a good look. You know, but I, I wasn't ready to um, face that yet. You know, I feel like everybody's got to have a bottom and mine was quite a bit different from most people's because of everything that I have been through. Uh, it's not that bad. <laughs> you know, the typical trauma response. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else is worse off than me. <laughs> exactly. And... So even on this climb of Pike's Peak, I actually had to have Daniel Pond go up and hang a bear bag of wine so that I didn't go through withdrawals on the mountain. Um, it was actually one of my biggest concerns as far as safety was um, in consideration. Uh, so the alcoholism really, really took its toll on me and throughout this I had acquired two DUIs um, at this point. The first one was just me being ridiculous and a lady wouldn't drive my car that was riding with me but hadn't drank because I had hand controls. So that was fun. Um, I got caught in that and reprimanded accordingly. <laughs> uh, the second 
DUI. I was asleep in my car in a residential neighborhood charging my phone uh, just 16 hours after the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb when uh, Sheriff Bill Elder awarded me with the Community Service Medal. Um, hmm. Ouch. Yeah. But uh, Scott's a great guy, and he's been a very influential part of my recovery as well. The officer that arrested me that night, he basically listened to me in the ER while I was getting my blood drawn, um, cry for like two hours about how I wouldn't be able to help people anymore. Um, it all came to a halt, uh, in August and July, the end of July, I had lost my grandpa and at the beginning of August, I lost my grandma and by the middle of August, I wound up in a suicide tunic in CJC, and I had apparently slapped a paramedic in the midst of all my alcoholic selfishness. I got caught with another DUI. Um, I was put on a no bond hold. I was not on the considerations list, but I was in isolation and a lady that came by to help me change my sheets <laughs> and told me to go talk to this woman at the table. And she managed to get me in on a video conference in front of the judge. And I pleaded with him and I begged him for a second chance. And he said, Ms. Horvath, um, you kill yourself with your alcoholism, that's one thing, but don't kill anybody else. And he said, here's your chance. I suggest you do something with it. I literally, metaphorically, in any, every sense of the way, took that chance and I ran with it. You know? Um... There was a lot of obstacles on that journey. Just getting released from CJC, I went to go to get checked in for sobriety monitoring. And that's when my phone started ringing. Um, Seth Boaster of the Colorado Springs Gazette got a hold of me first and He told me to take Snapchat off of my phone. He told me to deactivate my social accounts. He told me not to answer my phone. Told me not to answer any questions. And he was concerned for me and where I was at because I was experiencing severe issues with withdrawal. I was outside in my car, just convulsing and shaking while I was on the phone with him. And he could hear that in my voice. Um, 
he let me know that not only national news media, but international news media was informed of my stint in CJC and the reasoning for that being DUIs and alcoholism. He let me know that that story would be coming out any minute now and that it would be in my best interest to stay low, go seek medical attention, and um, work on myself. After I got off the phone with him, I got a call from Terry Franz, who uh, is the <laughs> the Kansas City Car Santa, um, Cars for Heroes founder and director. He's the one who gave me this car. And I thought for sure that he was going to start ripping into me about what a bad influence I am and everything else. And he gets on this phone with his uh, paternal instincts in tow. And he goes, Mandy, welcome to life. Listen, I had some issues a couple years back. Media loves bad stories. You can do a thousand good things, a thousand good things, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't take any notice to it. But you do one bad thing, and they'll flock to it. He goes, just do yourself a favor. Don't read any of the comments. Don't read any of the posting. And he, like Seth said, go seek medical attention. And so from that parking lot, I left and I went to the hospital. And they told me that my blood pressure was at lethal levels. And I needed um, to be monitored for the next few days. Um, they were very concerned about the possibilities of me seizing out. So I stayed there for three, four days, and um, that's really when the sobriety set in, I guess, you know. I was still, a, I was very, very anxious, um, very anxious. As I was being checked out, I remember I was crying, and I had asked this nurse, I was like, hey, uh, can you please ask the doctor for a script of Ativan? Because I'm not going to be able to function. Like, this straight up isn't cool. This is not, this isn't okay. <laughs> I need something. And she looked at me, and without really skipping a beat, she goes, no, I can't do that. And she came over to me, and she goes, I know who you are. I've seen, and I know that you can do this. Um, what you're feeling right now is perfectly normal, but you do need to get into some rehab. And she said, I want you to, while you're looking for a bed in rehab, look up Robert Downey Jr. and Tom Allen. And I, I asked her, I was like crying, you know, being traumatic and frantic. Um, I don't even know who Robert Downey Jr. is. You know, <laughs> she's like, girl, Iron Man, just go look it up. Okay. And 
I, I took her advice um, from afar, you know, like people that I looked to were Robert Downey Jr., Tom Allen, uh, Stephen King, Anthony Hopkins, you know, because um, I didn't really have a whole lot of support out here yet as far as being in sobriety was concerned. But I did find a bed and I got myself into Parker Valley Hope and their 30-day inpatient program. And I completed that in September of 2018. And from there, I utilized art and um, the therapy to regain some structure for my mental health. I didn't even know that I could draw until I quit drinking. <laughs> and apparently I'm capable of making fantastic portraits. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, you know, I paint now. I, I do a lot of creative things that are a great outlet for what I have to deal with um, internally, mentally. I got involved in AA. I found a sponsor who was coincidentally enough a retired detective for El Paso County. Um, she, Robin, she changed my life, um, gave me a lot of great principles to begin my sobriety on. And I dealt with the court. I approached the judge and came to terms and accountability for my actions. I completed over 300 hours of community service. Um, all of my education courses went to a victims against um, or mothers against drunk driving victim impact panel, you know. And I spent the entirety of the summer of uh, 2019 in El Paso County work release incarceration program, you know, um, from April to August, a week before my second ascent of Pikes Peak, <laughs> I was in jail. <laughs> and I met some really great, great people um, in that program. There are deputies that are in that facility that if I had not met them in there, I would consider friends on the outside. <laughs> um you know, it just it was an interesting experience for me, and it definitely brought me back to humility. Um, it also reaffirmed what I want to do with my life, you know, and that's just uh, I want to be better than I was yesterday, <laughs> every day. But beyond that, I, I want to help other people be better tomorrow than they are today, you know, and realize their full potential because I didn't even realize my potential until I started really diving into what was going on and the reasons for my alcoholism. Um, mental healing didn't come for a long while. I was very angry as a newly sober individual, um, as is with a lot of people that have gone through trauma but 
2019, in August, I was able to pull together an excursion and go up Pikes Peak again. And this time I got to um, take veteran Travis Strong, who's also a bilateral above knee amputee who was injured over in Afghanistan. And um, that was a really cool experience as well. You know, um, there's not very many women guides, but <laughs> other than Robert, who was one of those people that just showed up, um, nobody else had been to the summit of Pikes Peak. And so I was kind of, um, I was very frantic making sure that everything was going to be safe. I didn't want it to be like my first climb. Um, especially for Travis, who's a little bit older than I am, and um, he's muscular, and so he's very bulky, and I knew that he was going to experience some issues with his hands, and I wanted to prepare for that as best as possible. And so um, we successfully summited the mountain, and it was an honor to be able to facilitate watching Travis realize what he's really capable of. You know, I had to talk him into this <laughs> and he was very reluctant for um, a long while. It wasn't until a few weeks before I was actually going to do the climb that he agreed. Um, you know, and even now I'm sure that he'll tell you it was probably one of the hardest things that he's ever done. I don't think he took me quite seriously when I said that it would be. <laughs> um, it was it was a lot of fun. It it was, and of course I love being up at the A frame. And it was another one of those moments of glory getting to share that with uh, all of these incredible people. We had Joe Bolivol who did our media. Um, videography for the event and uh, Nicholas Hallisey was the main rucker who carried the majority of all of our possessions <laughs> and um, then we had Robert Greiner who just showed up at the incline and said hey how do you need help and ended up saving us by bringing gummy worms the first night <laughs> um, you know little things that are like joyous pick-me-ups in the depths of the woods <laughs> it's hard to forage for gummy worms it really is <laughs> i can tell you <laughs> well i mean there's so much to to pull from that and i think one big thing that it's a it's a common denominator in a lot of discussions that i have is again if you view addiction as a crime so the illicit drug users end up in prison you know obviously the alcoholism is left alone unless it manifests in dui or violent assault and then again you're in prison and the even though it doesn't excuse the actions of that moment i mean as you said you owned it you slapped a, a medic i'm sure that medic wasn't very happy i mean i've had i've had uh, violent patients myself so i can relate but you know when you look long term it's symptomatic of trauma you know, it's it's a journey, whether it's someone who's homeless, whether it's someone who's working the streets, whether it's 
someone who's gangbanging, whatever, you can reverse engineer to that that toddler and then play again, play forward and see the journey that sent them down that path. Now here you have, you know, the the trauma early life still doing incredibly well through the arts, through sports, through academia. Then you have this event with a train still trying to, you know, to function normally. There's some more hits and ultimately you found yourself leaning on alcohol. I don't think there's many people that drink out there that can say hand on their heart they haven't been over the limit at some point either. So there's a lot of hypocrisy with that too. It doesn't make it right, but I think a lot of us would be throwing stones in a glass house. My my wife actually after her boyfriend before me took his life lent very on 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 alcohol herself so you know it's it's the easiest coping mechanism for us you know at the moment to me the solution to so much of this is you know mental health whether it's you know the changing the kind of environment that that our children are growing up in schools being better parents i mean there's so many different areas to it but the the, these warning signs, these you know, the, these these addictions. If we can frame them to mental health, we can stop people getting to a dark place. Whether they wrap their car around a tree because they were drunk, whether they took their own life, whether they overdose on opioids, and uh, if we can remove that stigma, we can actually affect change. But that whole holier than vow, oh, you know, let's disregard Man- Mandy's entire story because she got a DUI. That is how we send people to the grave, in my opinion. So it's such a powerful thing that that, that judge did the right thing. You know, your your um, the people in law enforcement that you encountered that that helped everyone that showed up again. And it's just that the moment that we can drop judgment and realize that if someone's hurting, that they need help, and we can be the person reaching out. That's to me is how you make the paradigm shift with so many of these issues. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the little things sometimes mean a whole lot more than even the biggest event, like summiting the mountain, you know, um, just every gesture, every, every comment really does, um, affect people. And I, I guess I didn't, I skipped over this part because (laughs) I don't really like talking about it, but like you were saying, people are very hypocritical and, um, within 24 hours of me being released from CJC, I was everywhere on the media. Um, my mugshot was next to Kylie Jenner's rump on Snapchat stories, which is why Seth told me to take Snapchat off my phone, you know, um, just incredibly shameful and I I've spoken about this on my social media pages a couple times and posting uh, about how I feel on it I, I feel like I absolutely did mess up 100% I do not believe that it was in any way conducive or acceptable to blast me the way that I was blasted. If you go through those comments, there are death threats. Um, Numerous occasions I'm called trash. Uh, Why did she even survive being hit by the train? Um, 
Look at this danger to society. Uh, Just really, really hateful, uh, hurtful things. And even though I was told not to read them, you know, uh, it's it's very difficult whenever it's all all over the place. Um, and when your parents don't even know what's going on because you've isolated yourself so heavily that your mom has to call you because she just found out from the news. You know, that says a big thing. There weren't very many people in my life whenever I was going through this. Yet everybody wanted to attack me as if they were and they had done everything they could to save me or help me. And it was just very um, disgusting in my eyes. I I lost a lot of faith in humanity for through that. <laughs> um But there's still beautiful people out there and beautiful experiences to be had. And there's always help and support in corners that I never would have even thought. You know, I met Terry Franz uh, with Cars for Heroes back in 2010. I was 16 years old, had just graduated high school, and I was very close with a family um, that had their patriarch pass away. He was a veteran, a Marine, and I was very close to him as well. And it was their first Christmas without him. And so I got this bright idea, um, to write in an application to Cars for Heroes and see if I could help get them a car because they were struggling with transportation. And it, it, it worked out of 17,000 applications. Uh, Terry contacted me and he helped me get that family a car for Christmas. And that's when our relationship had started. Uh, you know, it wasn't until 2017 years later and he heard about my story again realized that he knew me and donated that vehicle to me. But even more than that, this man, um, he's always believed in me. He never, ever gave up on me. Even though he gave me a car and I totally trashed that, uh, privilege. (laughs) Um, you know, he, he let me start Cars for Heroes Colorado. And so through that, we were able to donate a couple cars. And it's still a plausibility out here if, you know, things ever return to normal. <laughs> he, whenever I asked him if I could climb Pike's Peak in the name of Cars for Heroes, he said, absolutely. Um, you know, he was there to support Travis and I, however we needed, and the rest of the crew. And whenever I 
asked him how he would feel about me climbing the Statue of Liberty for Cars for Heroes. He was totally on board for that as well. And um, so in September, I got to go out to New York City after I did a lot of um, computer work prior to this. I sent over 500 personalized emails out to various um, police officers and firefighters there in New York City um, asking how to get access to buildings. <laughs> that wasn't shady. <laughs> um, so, you know, people out here in Colorado know me, right? They know that I'm perfectly capable of crawling wherever I want to. <laughs> but does um, the Statue of Liberty know that I'm going to be fine crawling up the stairwell? Or, you know, I was even looking at trying to get to go to the Trade Center because um, that was important to me. But there's a lot of red, red tape on that um, for obvious reasons, and I did not push that further to be respectful. Well, I can, I can, you know, pretend or, or completely relate with that. I climbed the One World Trade Center with Rob Jones. You know who that is? He's a Marine bilateral above the amputee as well. Um, yes. Yeah, so we went there, and it's funny because you talk about restrictions. I took all my fire gear, paid for an entire extra suitcase and the extra upcharge, got there, and they were like, "Yeah, you can't, you can't climb in that. It's a security risk." So I know exactly what you're talking about. You, all you were allowed to wear was gym shorts and everything, but yeah, the the stipulations around that building are extremely tight. Yeah, and I did get a hold of somebody that could have given me permission, but at the end of the day, it was just kind of. I don't want to push this, you know. Um, maybe I'll return out to New York after I've done a few more things and see if some red tape can be cut for me then. But well, there's a. I'm, I'm sorry, Rob, but there's there's the tunnel to towers stair climb. So they do have an event that actually goes up. We wouldn't need to worry about that. You just you just register for that. So let me know if you ever do that because I know Rob's trying to do it as well. That would be cool as hell if. Yeah, I got to climb with you and, and, and Rob at the same time. Yeah, I was um, trying to do the 5K that they had out there. So it's interesting you mentioned them. I'm definitely aware that that's out there. Uh, great organization. You haven't spoke about them before. Um, but out of those 500 emails, I got permission um, through the U.S. Forest Service to climb Lady Liberty. And that was remarkable. <laughs> I had just been released from jail a month prior and getting to go and ride the staff ferry over to the island and um, essentially have the island to ourselves that morning Oh, man, just metaphorical uh, mass amounts of sunshine and glory because just being a woman in this country and having the voice and the platform that I've been blessed to have um, 
and to get to do these incredible things, it, it made me overwhelmed with just gratefulness for my life again. You know, um, I really wasn't sure if I was ever going to be able to turn my life around from alcoholism. And I'm two years and eight months sober as of now. Which is and amazing. I, thank you. And I had just celebrated a year of sobriety then. And gosh, I just, I felt incredibly blessed and privileged to be there amongst such great people. Um, and I had Nicholas Hallisey, my teammate from Pikes Peak travel out there with me to do videography and I, you know, Jerry Willis of the U.S. Forest Service and all the people that were there on the island that morning were just incredible to meet and get to know their stories a bit. Um, it, it's the moments like that that I, I, I live for, you know. I love getting to meet new people and learn their stories because it's always interesting. It takes all kinds of kinds. <laughs> well, with you... Yeah, I, I think it's such a, a healing thing to give back, but obviously you have to be in a position to give back. So when you first climbed, you know, the incline, obviously that night before you were, you know, basically planning your own suicide. So you went through this journey, you got the DUIs, you, you, you finally had the right people around you that were able to, you know, lead you through recovery. Um, now you're out the other side and you're sober. How healing was it for you to feel like you were giving back as well? Uh, much better. You know, I, I feel like a big part of the shame in my alcoholism was realizing that I was trying to help people and I couldn't even help myself. And so actually being out there and being sober, being able to stand behind what I am actually about um, changed my perspective on life in general. I, I don't I don't feel like the world revolves around me anymore, you know? It's awesome. It's amazing how putting down a bottle can do that for you. Absolutely. But again, I mean you you had all that trauma prior. So when you were either then or or, or the last year or so what were some of the elements that have contributed to healing? Again, as, as you mentioned before, like you're still having problems think, uh, sleeping, you have night terrors. So as with so many people with mental health struggles, it's not like black and white. Oh, I'm cured now. I'm just going to go make Disney movies. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly working towards it. But I mean, people on here, we've had canine, uh, canine therapy, equine therapy, EMDR, you know, um, MDMA based there. I mean, just so many different modalities out there. What were some of the things that worked for you actually addressing the underlying trauma that was manifesting in addiction? I did a lot of work in AA on an in-depth level going all the way back to my childhood and really addressing the underlying issues of why I drank. Um, you know, 
it's not really a topic for podcasts, but I was sexually abused in childhood as well. And a lot of compounding events um, throughout my adolescence affected me in ways that I hadn't recognized. And so very thorough assessment of why am I doing this? Why am I trying to drink myself in oblivion? What am I trying to hide from? Um, those mental components were very important. And additionally, um, meditation was very important to me. I tried MDMR therapy. I think that's what it is. Uh, EMDR, yeah. EMDR, sorry. Um, I tried that. It gave me massive migraines. So, it, I mean, I went for two months and I finally, I freaked out on my counselor. He called me and I was like, look, I don't think you get what this is doing to me, but it's my, my brain is turning to mush. Like I have inconsolable migraines every time we meet. And he, he's like, whoa, I did not know that, you know. Um, apparently, <clears throat> if you experience uh, those migraines after a session like that, it's really bad. <laughs> and you're actually doing more damage than you are help. So, just word to the wise. <clears throat> um, I really heavily leaned on people in the community and I also found that um, changing my nutrition helped a lot. And overall, finding better, healthier activities to um, fill my time with, you know. Um, and similarly to what I said in my assembly to the kids this morning, an old tale that my dad used to try to teach me was you're known by the company you keep. Um, and that was a very hard lesson for me to learn. And so I was very adamant in not having to continue to learn that lesson. Um, I'm very conscious of who I involve in my life these days um, with good reason. I don't hang out in bars. I, you know, I don't have any desire to drink the rest as I, the rest of my days. I'm good. I very strongly recommend that if somebody is new to sobriety or thinking about sobriety to find a sponsor or somebody to get everything off of your chest to. Um, you know, medical professionals are great, but at the end of the day, I, I pretty much refuse to see an actual psychologist because of all of the pharmaceutical load I was on. A lot of it was psychological medication. <laughs> are supposed to be helping um, 
and therapy groups, you know, support groups, peer support is really important. You can pull more from people in your everyday life than you ever could somebody that can get up on a stage and talk about it. Um, you know, there's incredible people right next to you, your neighbors. Um, it's important to tap into that. Absolutely. Well, there's a couple of things that, that you talked about. One, it's funny when you said about the sexual abuse not being for a podcast because this journey that I've been on listening to some extremely powerful stories, I would say probably about a third of my guests have been sexually abused, physically abused around alcoholism. It's far more prevalent. A lot of these are men as well. So that's another hugely stigmatized thing. And and again, you take an innocent child that that is born into this world and implicitly relies on the mother and the father to protect them from all the evils in the world. And that's betrayed, you know, whether it's de deliberately or, or unknowingly. That in itself is a huge trauma to carry through life. And then you compound it with all the other things, whether it's a soldier or a firefighter or a, a young lady that gets her legs cut off by a train. I mean, you know, it's, it's the same journey. So that childhood trauma element, I think, is so important. Some people are aware of what happened to them. Some people have locked it away. They, they find out, I had a guest uh, about two or three months ago who it was something that happened to him when he was an adult that suddenly opened that door and he realized he was molested by his grandfather, I think it was, or, or an elderly relative anyway, you know, so that is, I think it's, it should be a topic for conversation. It should be on the podcast because it happens to so many people and whether it's, you know, an actual assault, whether it's another element, whether it's, I had one that was uh, adopted, you know, I had someone that was a middle child and that was traumatic to them because they didn't feel loved. So, you know, it is, it should be, absolutely should be a conversation i think on you know the news podcasts in schools everything you know it should be normalized so that we can we can get it out i agree with that but not everybody does so. <laughs> well fuck everybody this is <laughs> the know, behind the shield podcast <laughs> not everybody is comfortable with hearing those kinds of things either you know um kind of like you do thousand good things and one thing wrong same kind of concept applies there but um i i had a few um situations in my childhood and my adolescence that were pivotal um in my sexual health as an adult and still affect me to today you know, um, I didn't even know about the first incident until I was seven years old. And I had a really weird dream. I had a dream that I was sitting underneath a glass table and my mother was sitting in a chair next to another woman by this table. And through the table, I could see a red three ring binder. And I'm seven years old, and the next morning, I get this bright idea, and I go to my mother, and I said, Mom, I, I need a red three-ring binder for school today. Can I have a red three-ring binder? I have to have it. And uh, she looked at me, 
and she was dressed for work like she was getting ready to go to work. Um, and she said, you're not going to go to school today and I'm going to call in. And she goes down and picks this up off of the shelf, um, this red three ring binder that I had never even noticed was there. And it's an entire case file of me when I was a year and a half old. I had been severely molested by somebody in my family. Uh, I was left with my grandma, who died in the summer of 2018, a week before I was arrested, mind you. That's probably important to note. I was left with my grandma, um, a man that was not actually blood-related to my family named Uncle D, and some cousins, and my dad. While my brother was being um, brought into the world. And I was left there for two weeks, um, just while my mother got stabilized because my brother was born half in the vehicle, half in the hospital. But I came back to my parents um, trying to do things to my father um, that no year and a half old should know about. Um, trying to stick hot dogs in places that no year and a half old should know about. Very crazy stuff. Um, I, I started, according to my mother, I started walking and talking whenever I was eight months old. So I was already pretty um, a fast developer, I, I guess I should say. I don't know how to put that. <laughs> yeah, that's the perfect sign, perfect uh, description. And um, yeah, and, and that was the first incident in my life I that I occurred the sexual trauma. And again, when I was nine years old. Um, but. I'd rather not talk about that one. No. Well, I don't want you to talk about anything that you don't want to talk about. But I think the the, the stories that have been told on here, they're important because clearly there's a huge, and we want to use the word pandemic, there's a pandemic of molestation, you know, that isn't talked about. And young boys and girls are victims to predators. You know, a good friend of mine, Chad, who came on here and he battled alcoholism, was literally about to take his own life, had that third and final rehab try not worked. Thank God he had an aha moment with that environment, with that group of people, that group of mentors, and it worked that last time. But his childhood molestation was a huge part of that. So by us not having this conversation, we keep putting those children in vulnerable positions. And one thing that seems to be very, um, again, a common denominator is... We talk about addiction, we talk about violence, we talk about some other things, and there's definitely a ripple effect from childhood into someone becoming like that, but not with pedophilia. That's a completely separate kind of human being or subhuman being. With us diluting 
police, you know, social service, all these things with all these things that we can fix, like addiction and alcoholism and all the, you know, that we can address, we can then focus on this because this is a horrendous thing that then causes, you know, ungodly trauma in each of these individuals' lives. And like I said, I've got 400 episodes. That means there's about 100 plus people on this show that have had some kind of semblance of what we talked about today. So, you know, it, now fast forward to Mandy having a DUI again reverse reverse engineer that you know it's not like oh Mandy just can't handle a drink no there's an entire timeline leading up to that point and that's what we have to understand no no kindergartner wanted to be an alcoholic and wanted to you know be homeless wanted to be a prostitute wanted to be you know gangbanger wanted to be morbidly obese you know none of these things these are all manifestations of trauma in some shape or form so thank you for for sharing your story i mean i i hate that it came up but if we don't share these stories then we're pushing them back into the shadows and more and more children are left vulnerable so i i want to drag that fucking you know topic out of the shadows so that we can actually do something about it yeah it it definitely needs talked about more frequently and on a much more open availability um you know people need to get past some of their own barriers and really understand what's happening out there um, you know, not just with ped- pedophilia, but with sex trafficking and other concerns related. I can go forever on topics like this because it's something that originally inspired me to start using my voice. Um, um, yeah, I mean, there's, and then there's the whole topic of devotees and trans disabled. Um, it, yeah, it can get very diluted. So uh, it, I commend you for having people talk about that on your podcast because not many would want that. You know, some are very anti, don't tell me this or that. Yeah, <laughs> and well, I've a few. Well, this, I mean, this podcast is about making a difference. It's about kindness and compassion and making change. And I signed up to do a job that goes into the community and you know hopefully we we help you know as a firefighter as a paramedic you know i believe a lot of people do doctors and nurses and police officers and counselors but we can't help unless we take in all the factors and that seems to be a huge one in the first responder military ptsd space Um, there's a great organization called save a warrior led by a guy called jake clark who is an amazing man but that's what they do different they they say we don't almost we don't care about what you saw at war what you saw on the streets start from day one and let's walk forward and so much you know they find that some of these men and women it's it's the childhood trauma that's that's really the the you know the biggest load in their their mental bucket as it were so again thank you so much well i want to steer you to um, another incredible organization that's actually local here in central florida so tell me about 50 legs (laughs) yeah after I got back from New York in September, um, <laughs> Steve Chamberlain, the founder of 50 Legs, he flew out here to Colorado to meet me. Um, mistakenly, he didn't pack pants. He only wore shorts, which I thought was a little funny. 
Those damn he's Floridians. Away well. <laughs> um, but it, it started snowing, and so he, he almost didn't catch a plane back down to sunny Florida. Uh, he came out here to try to convince me to get up in prosthesis. Um, so here I am, you know, in Colorado. I've, I've established, like, a name for myself, Crawling. Um, but I've pretty much written off prosthetics at this point because I had never been in a pair that were functional, fitted well to me, or customized in any way. Um, they were very rigid, the set that I had. I didn't have rotator knees. I didn't have flexion ankles. I didn't have an adjustable foot. Um, and I had lanyard sockets that caused a lot of issues um, with off-the-shelf liners giving me um, serious, serious problems with skin breakdown, um, fungal issues. I was seven years being an amputee until I learned that you're supposed to wear ointment underneath your liners. And mind you, I had been through Hanger and a few other companies before that. Um, they would give me equipment that didn't really fit, didn't really work, and say good luck. And being a bilateral, especially above knee, it doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. It literally takes a, an entire village of people to keep me up walking ambulatory. Um, I went down to Orlando, Florida, as Steve recommended. He paid for my flight down there. He paid for my hotel. And I got to meet everybody at Prosthetic and Orthotics Association down there in Orlando, Florida. And it was a complete change of consciousness for me regarding prosthetics because in my previous experiences going to meet a prosthetist, I was put in this little bitty room. Um, you know, it's kind of sh shady. You know, you don't get to meet any other amputees. You don't get to see what other people are doing or how they're being fitted. But here you walk in and there's three or four amputees being fitted by different prosthetists. There's four sets of parallel bars and chairs that line the walls for their families to sit. There's a gym on the opposite end of this facility. And they do all of their fabrication in-house. An entire village, an entire team of people. Um, and I got to get fitted uh, thanks to Stan Patterson's double wall socket design. I, I'm able to walk comfortably. Uh, not just for a couple hours a day. I can wear those up to 18 hours a day. I've put them on for longer. Um, I used to really enjoy pushing it with that. But now, I really, and now I've learned that um, my residual limb volume tends to shrink very fast. And so I, it's kind of like anything else. It's best used in moderation. Mm -hmm. did, did the local papers say what a piece of shit you were because now you were walking instead of crawling uh, like you used to? <laughs> you won't believe no. what Mandy Hovart's doing now. <laughs> no, actually, they haven't even contacted me. And they know what's going on. Well, it's good news. They don't want to hear good news. Yeah. B bad you know. news sells. 
No, I I have intentions. I'm actually, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But I, I got to have this incredible experience down in Orlando, Florida, getting fitted for prosthesis. And they hooked me up big time. I have the runway foot now. I'm able to wear different kinds of shoes. I got myself a pair of cowboy boots. It's amazing. <laughs> Um, I have flexion ankles now, which means I'm not kick walking, like stamping my feet down. You know, I, I have rotator knees, which make it so much easier for me to dress myself. And the double wall socket design has been the most comfortable socket design I've been in. And I've had suction, lanyard, pin, um, just, Yeah. I am so incredibly blessed. And not only that, but this last time I went down to Florida, I, you know, it's been about a year and I'm pretty good in prosthesis now, whatever else. But I'm starting to graduate out of my old Autobach knees, my mechanisms. And so Stan Patterson approached me and he said, hey, why don't you try this Proteor Alex knee? And I did on one leg. So I had an Autobach leg on one leg and an Alex knee on another. I know it's... Well, I'm laughing because people do that in shoe shops. They put two different shoes on two different feet and walk around. (laughs) Yeah, I was just using different knees and just trying out different knees. So (laughs) (laughs) I I loved the way that the Alex knee uh, gave me more stability with a four-bar knee component as opposed to the um, single modular that the auto box uh, provided me a lot more stability and control of what I'm doing as a bilateral. And so um, Stan actually got me hooked up with a pair of those Proteor knees. And now I have a lot of support here in Colorado as well. Um, The distributor for Proteor on this side of the country. Uh, I just met with him last Wednesday about a consultation for sub Ishmael double wall sockets. So I'm getting better and better every day. Uh, it's taking quite a bit of an adjustment with learning these Alex knees, but every time I'm, you know, trying to, curl a 10 pound dumbbell in my robotic stilts I I, <laughs> I have to try to remember that this is part of the growth curve you know the learning curve um there's a lot of things that are different but I'm learning to manipulate that to my own advantage and I'm excited to see how the next couple years pan out with these uh mechanical bad boys so. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing to hear. I've got, I've had a few people on here that were amputees. Uh, Christy Annis, and if you know her, she's a mountaineer. She lost a leg in a helicopter crash, actually, um, out in, in the Middle East. Uh, Mark Ormrod, who's a Royal Marine British guy, lost two, two legs and an arm. Um, so I get to see them, you know, climb mountains, do jujitsu, run, you know, row. Um, with all these prostheses. So it's, it's so inspiring to see. And sadly, as, uh, I forget who it was, one of my guests recently said, yeah, this has come out of war. The reason why, um, you know, the adaptive community and some of these prostheses have, have moved so far is because we had a lot of men and women 
come home missing limbs. But the upside is obviously the adaptive community has just flourished and seeing these prostheses and seeing these incredible athletes overcome whatever, you know, physiological, anatomical changes that were, were given to them. Um, I, I, it's just so inspiring to me to, so to see technology align with that to allow these men and women to, you know, keep pushing the needle is just, it's, it's amazing. So, you know, organizations like 50 legs are, are doing incredible things. Yeah. Um, I'm just one of hundreds of amputees that they help every year. Uh, you, you gotta understand one, Steve is probably, <laughs> one of the biggest goofballs that I know but he has the biggest heart like he's this big tattooed muscular dude you know he's bald and got this goatee looks like a biker because he is a biker but uh, he, he looks intimidating but then you, you get to know him and he's just really this big hearted teddy bear and he told me whenever he was sitting in my living room, he's like, you don't have to worry about getting your legs for the rest of your life. I will help you. Um, and for amputees that, you know, need prosthesis in order to be ambulatory kids, you know, that need four prosthesis a year because they're growing. Um, it's a revolution in what he's providing for the adaptive community he doesn't just focus on, um, you know, people my age or kids. He, I've seen people brought into POA through 50 legs that are in their 60s and 70s, sometimes older. Um, it, it's an incredible team, and what they're doing down there is state of the art, and it, you, you will be hard-pressed to find that anywhere else. Well, I posted a video probably about two months ago, ago and it was uh, Blake Leaper. And uh, this girl must have been, I think she was three, but he was in the same facility. I don't know if it was, it was through 50 Legs or if it was another organization, but it was a, you know, it seemed like a prosthesis charity again. But he was showing this little girl how to walk. And Blake's, uh, you know, he's a sprinter, isn't he? A high level sprinter, double amputee as well. And just this little girl watching a man who looked the same as her, it was one of the most beautiful moments. So like you said, whether it's children, whether it's the elderly, whether it's athletes, whether it's veterans, um, just you know, the, the, the power of prosthesis is just you know, mind-blowing to watch. Yeah. And beyond that, getting to go down there and meet the entire community in such an open setting and actually being immersed in not only what's going on with you, but watching, you know, whoever's getting their leg next to you, it, it's an, inc- an incredible environment. Um, they make miracles happen there. Uh, they make dreams come true there. Uh, they make success possible for amputees uh, across the country and across the world. I mean, I believe they just flew in somebody from Africa to get fitted with a leg, a little girl, you know, like what Stan, Steve, um, you know, Roger and all of the other prostitutes there, they all play a very vital part in, in how things 
operate there. And it's great to watch them interact as a staff as well. You know, you can tell that they're family. Um, you become part of a family whenever you become affiliated with 50 Legs. And uh, it's an, a network, a web. And all it takes is reaching out to one person and you can get all the way to the other end um, just through a simple text message. So it's pretty cool. It's incredible. And again, just a group of people that care. I think Steve is a professional wrestler too, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 I'm going to have to get him on the show, I think. He sounds like an amazing person. Oh, Steve would love that. Yeah. He actually, I, I, I got introduced to the Hulkster. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He introduced me to the Hulkster at the Meekum auction. And it was, it was awesome because, uh, you know, he was getting in his little um, golf cart to go to the next car position, I guess, because uh, he's walking with a cane. He's had some surgeries in the last couple of years and whatever else, but he's sitting in this golf cart and I got walked around the side to go and meet him. And he saw me and without even asking him, he, you know, gets up out of this cart to come and shake my hand and give me a great big smile and a hug. And it, it was just, it was awesome getting to meet him, you know, and reality TV, uh, in my own experience, I, I kind of really got to realize, uh, the people that I idolized as a child were just people too. Um, after I became involved in media, I discovered this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just a great guy. Hulk, what he does is he actually, he auctions off his muscle cars for 50 legs. So, so you, don't, you don't hear about that. You just hear his, you know, racist uh, outcry that he had and that, that discourage, you know, dis I'm so tired of hearing about that shit. I really am. Yeah. If, but but it discredits everything that, that, that he did before. And that's, and that's the thing that's important. I think for us, we've all, None of us are perfect, you know, and does that make that right? Was that insensitive? Yeah, but the same with the CrossFit, you know, Greg uh, Glassman, the founder, made made one tweet that, you know, made everyone upset, and they're ready to build that, burn down CrossFit that had done so much good for so many communities, and that's what we have to stop doing. We have to say, yeah, I screwed up, you know, you caught me and I, and I you know, lashed out, and, and that was insensitive, but that doesn't define who I am. Your DUI did not define who you were. So, you know, uh, yeah, I'm sick of hearing it too. Yeah, that kind of uh, that kind of behavior I just I get very upset about. Sorry. <laughs> but to put this in perspective for you, had um Hulk Hogan not put that vehicle up for auction the year prior to me getting into 50 legs, um 50 legs would have been $300,000 short in helping amputees. If you put that in perspective of legs, do you know how many legs $300,000 can buy? I can imagine it's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot of people. And for people like in my position that are missing two legs, it's especially hard to have to fight for the equipment that I need. Um, most of the time, insurance won't even touch you. Uh, it's ridiculous. And then there's the 20% that a lot of amputees and already financially limited people cannot afford. 
And so what they're doing and stepping in and paying out the extra 20% the insurance won't cover and then paying for the hotel and then paying for, you know, the flights out there and back, what they're doing is you won't find it in another organization. Um, and I say, I can say that confidently. It's not even a bias. Yeah, but no, and I'm glad that you told that story because that's the thing. Those are the stories that don't get told. So the, so the people that are famous that have come on here happen to be famous, but they're good people and they do good things with their fame. And I'm sure you can, I know you can look through all of their history and find something that they didn't, they did that wasn't perfect. And does that make it right? Like I said, no, we all screw up. But that doesn't, you know, then discount all the good someone's done. So thank you for sharing that Hulk Hogan story. Um, I want to get to one more topic and then we'll go to some closing questions so I can let you go. But um, we mentioned or you mentioned while we were talking before we start recording that through 2020 and all the craziness, you found yourself in back in Colorado and you're training for another event. So tell me tell me what's next for Mandy Horvath. Um, so I, I did move down to Florida in the beginning of 2020 and that just turned into a um, literal and metaphorical shit show for my life Uh, with coronavirus setting in um, I also experienced some health issues um, at the beginning of the year but I ended up getting to uh, come back to Colorado um, to finish out some stipulations of my court sentence. Um, now they're allowing them to be taken remotely, so uh, my rear's a little chapped on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm where I need to be. Had I not had come back to come out Colorado, I would not have been there um, in December when my grandmother passed and I would not be as close to the mountains I need to be in to train. Um, in 2018, after doing Pike's Peak, it be kind of, it kind of became a tossed around joke. Uh, what's next, Mandy, you know, you're going to do Everest. And I'm like, that doesn't sound sanitary. <laughs> Climbing over dead bodies does not sound fun. <laughs> Um, how about something else that is very similar and just as beautiful? And I, my grandma was very avid about watching the animal planet. And I have always been very immersed with Steve Irwin and conservation through hunting and foraging. And so I settled upon Kilimanjaro. And you can actually go back to the 2018 interview of me on the Today Show whenever I first announced that I would be going to do this mountain. And this was before all of my trouble. So here I am a couple years later. I am going to be approaching the judge on April 5th. And asking him to terminate the status of my probation so that I am able to apply for a passport so that in June I can travel to Tanzania and climb Mount Kilimanjaro uh, 50 miles 
and then kind of spend some time in the community and do some safariing and get to learn about the conservation efforts that they've got going on out there and see what I can do to help. So, wow, man, let me tell you, in the last few months, on top of all of the mental and emotional health changes that I've made through sobriety, I really started looking at what I was doing in my life that was unhealthy on a daily pattern. Like, what was I putting in my body? Um, You know, (laughs) I was eating a bunch of crap, a bunch of processed bull. And so I had to address that. I, I cut out all of the dairy in my diet. I I don't eat processed grains. I don't eat pasta anymore. I am strictly paleo. And my mental health and my emotional well-being, my over overall physical health and overall physical well-being has improved so much in such a little time that I don't even, I'm, I'm kind of amazed by it. You know, had you have told me four years ago that I would have the most badass robotic legs and be standing with my six pack, soon to be eight pack, um, getting chiseled in my spare bedroom at midnight because that's what I do to help fall asleep. I probably would have told you you're nuts, (laughs) but it's what I'm doing and it's working for me. Um, it's working for me big time. I adjusted everything that I was doing with my schedule. I have a huge book scheduler. Now I have Uh, put it on your fridge scheduler now so I'm not missing stuff I'm not late anymore or as often I should say I'm not perfect by any means nor will I ever be but through all of these changes and additionally adding supplements to my life and um, changing my morning routine and adding Shakeology to my coffee you know I also have recently um, become a new plant mom and I have an obsession with house plants right now. <laughs> All of these things are drastically changing my life. I, I, I can't even put into words how much better I feel. Um, not only about my physical health and mental health, but like what I'm doing, you know, I actually feel good about who I am today and what I'm doing and what I'm trying to push out there. I, I'm not as scared to use my voice anymore. Um, I'm I'm in another stage of becoming, another mountain to climb, um, and it's it's going even beyond the mountain. You know, um, since I've been training. I took on Megan Holmes as my coach. Um, She's a local to Colorado Springs. She's an army wife and mother. And she's one of those people 
that ever since I did the incline the first time, she showed up to every climb, every climb, and her daughter was with her too. She came over to my apartment at like midnight and was sewing pants to make sure that I'm good. You know, just showing up. She wasn't always my coach at first. She was an acquaintance and then she was my friend. But I started to want what she had. And so I asked her for guidance. And so she brought me into her her coaching program. And through posting my own videos and modifications, because things are obviously a little bit different for me than they are for um, the people on our workout videos, so many people have already approached me and asked me to do modified workout sets that I am considering, you know, getting a full filming production crew set up to do modified workouts specifically for amputees and other people that are disabled or in wheelchairs. Um, I didn't have that whenever I was first amputated. Let me tell you, that's, yeah, I sat around and I gained a lot of weight. Um, nor did I have any knowledge of how to modify things. And I, I've learned a lot <laughs> in the last few years as far as that's concerned. And so I'm considering the potential of becoming a personal trainer or coach after, you know, amongst or on top of um climbing mountains and doing speaking engagements and whatever else I can. So I'm, I'm just so excited for the possibilities. Like even if the judge says, no, you need to sit down and wait, I will respect that because I'm the one who messed up. Even if he says, Hey, you know what? I see what you're doing. Uh, you've done quite a bit. Why don't you go ahead and go? Uh, I'm, I'm excited for what my life is going to evolve into in the next few years. If I don't go to Kilimanjaro, I'm going to invest every waking moment I have into getting running legs. You know, one way or another, I'm going to do incredible things this year. And it's by this mentality of this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm going to do it. And then being seriously dedicated and pushing through every obstacle and every no that you get, because for every no you get, just remember there is, there is somebody out there that will say yes. Um, there is somebody out there. There's, there's ways. So, well, I'm excited for you. I mean, I'm just looking at you now and you're so enthused. And again, you said about showing up. I mean, this, the whole point of the story, the whole moral has come up over and over again is you got two types of people. People that are throwing rocks at people and people that are just showing the hell up and, and, you know, making positive change. And that appeared in your life earlier on. Now you've become that person as you've, you know, risen from the ashes to use the, the metaphor. And now you're showing up for, for other people and inspiring them. So, you know, I mean, if there's a, a message out of this whole conversation is don't be the, don't be the one slinging mud, be the one that actually shows up. Cause I know, you know, the, the before the incline you know the the couple was was a you know probably a divine intervention moment you know but the next day it was the man that showed up 
to climb with you, you know, and then the people that showed up in your recovery and, um, you know, the 50 legs people and the cars for, for heroes. People. I mean, just so many great humans. And I agree with you 100%. We all know who the shitbags in the world are. They adorn our street, our screens over and over and over again. But we are surrounded by incredible people. And as you pointed out, many of them are next door down the street, you know, so it's it's been so inspiring to hear your journey and it's so incredible to see how enthused you are and and you're i agree with you 100 percent. the the ruling will be the ruling it's how you react to it so if you go to if you're meant to go to kelenjaro this year then that will manifest if you're meant to wait a little bit longer then it'll be that way but it's not gonna change your your journey and your drive so I want to just circle to some um, some closing questions so I can let you go. So we've been talking, what, like two and a half hours, I think, now combined. So um, I know it flies by, doesn't it? <laughs> so the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Man, I'm a bookworm. doesn't have to just be one if you've got a few. Okay, I got a few. I'm going to recommend uh, Stephen King's Dark Tower series, Russell Brand's Recovery, and what is the n- name of that book? Procovery. Pro Recovery, I think it is. I'm not sure. There's all kinds of books out there that I, I'm like, I, I want to kind of go look, but I'm also like, damn, we need to get through this. <laughs> Okay, it's the power of um, procovery, and there's another one, um, "The Language of Letting Go" by Melody Bietti. Brilliant. Okay, well, I haven't heard of any of those actually, even Russell Brand's one. So um, I think there's four great titles to add to the list. So thank you. All right. Well, the other next question: um, What about a movie and/or a documentary that you love? Um, I suppose movies that I love are generally all the old classics. I try not to, um, watch TV too much anymore. Um, I'm so involved with school and everything else. So, um, just to rattle off a few Shawshank Redemption, Sling Blade, um, The Green Mile, Forrest Gump. Yeah, those are my favorites. Brilliant. Well, I, I heard you mention uh, Shawshank, I think, in a previous conversation as well. And I tell people this that, that mention that film. If you're ever in Ohio, there is the, I think it's called the Ohio Reformatory. And it was where they filmed that, f- that movie. And now they built a brand new prison. So all the, you know, the prisoners are in that new facility. So you can actually go visit this old jail and it's 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 kind of haunting in a way because it's somewhat run down it's tragic in a way because you see these tiny tiny holes that these prisoners lived in for decades and decades but then you have the interaction with a lot of the movie sets that they either have within the prison or they built you know and and put into the rooms so you can go to the warden's office you can see where um I forget the character's name where, you know, where he, where he hung himself in the room. They have all those kind of set up. So for the Shawshank fans out there, if you're ever in Ohio, that's something you have to go see. 
I'll have to check that out. I don't know when I'll be going to Ohio. But... <laughs> you might have to make a trip just to go there. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting. What are yours? My my favorite films? Yeah. Um, people haven't responded that on me very much. Um, I love... Um, Again, Shawshank is, is, is a huge one, Green Mile, so I agree with you with all your choices. Um, there's some lesser-known ones. Cry Freedom, Denzel Washington about Steve Biko. That's an incredible one. The Power of One, which is another South Africa-based um, film. Um, the, the Band of Brothers, the HBO series, incredible. I and mean, there's just so many. But they're all... I love the ones that are based on true stories because just as we've discussed today... There are so many incredible humans in the world. So when they tell the story properly with the right people, the right script, the right budget, um, those are the ones that move me. I got no problems crying through a film. So Coco, that's <laughs> another good one. If we're talking about me crying yeah. like a three-year-old girl. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. Oh, bring some tissues. Trust, trust me. So, I think yeah. the last one I saw that really got to me was the New Age Up and Dumbo. Uh, I thought that was adorable. Yeah, up is another one. That's so sad with the elderly couple. Whew. <laughs> oh, I feel like I've almost cried enough today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll we'll transition. So the next question: Is there a person or people that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as guests to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, okay. You ready for this list? Give it to me. All right. Um, start with Terry Franz. That's Car Santa, and I can get you hooked up with him. Brilliant. There's Steve Chamberlain of Fifty Legs. There's Kenny Bass of the Battle Buddy Foundation. I have Brittany Nader of Operation Ward 57. I got Tyler Southerner. He is a pretty much a quadruple amputee he's got what he calls the claw he's a really funny guy i can definitely get him on with you and you guys would have a blast um he's been incredible throughout my recovery um as a, a friend and fellow amputee uh obviously travis strong the other bilateral amputee that did the mountain with me i know so many that's, I really do. That's a huge list. We'll, we'll obviously talk past this. So, um, I, I could get you in touch with Amy Dagg, who is um, amputated in the arms from being overseas. I, I mean, so many really influential and inspiring people. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely get that list put together for you. Beautiful. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the thing with, you know, it with – these incredible adaptive athletes, these, these men and women, the amputees is, it's not like, Oh, you know, let's get some people on that are missing limbs. No, it's about seeing what these people have done with the, the hand that was dealt with them and how they're, you know, many of them had similar stories to yourself. It wasn't like, Oh, I lost an arm. So I'm just fine. No, they, they go down this dark place, but then when they come out the other end, you know, they're just seizing a, um, inspiring, resilient men and women. And I, I just absolutely adore talking to people like that. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking and checking people, more people off the list as I'm sitting here. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Well, like I said, we'll 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 go back and forth more. But I mean, that's a, that's a, a fantastic list to start, and some amazing humans on that list. So thank you. Um, the last question before we go to you know making sure people know where to find you and reach out to you. What do you do to decompress? Meditation. Um, remembering <laughs> my plants have been helping out a lot with this. Uh, I I have some pretty bad anxiety, uh, especially with the onslaught of isolation throughout 2020. I've been feeling very cooped up and um, depressed. So I started out with um, watching my friend's house plants a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and she took them back home. And I decided that I needed 50 to fill the void. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's just something nice about it, getting to care for them. Um, here in my little apartment that I live on the fourth floor, um, especially while it's so cold out here in Colorado. I'm also, you know, training, working out every day or when I'm not having a rest day. Um, and I'm going to be hitting the mountains as soon as possible. I was blessed to meet somebody here locally, um, a local business that is possibly going to sponsor me for gear for Kilimanjaro. Um, and, and that'll be just so helpful as far as comfortability is concerned, because I hadn't had that support in my past climbs. You know, I did all of them in jeggings. <laughs> That's really not safe whenever you're going up to um, Alpine. Yeah, I'm really hopeful. But I forgot where I was going because, yeah. Um, well, you were talking about decompressing, so the, the training and the, the mountain, and then you said that the local business was going to sponsor you for your gear. Yes, I'm maybe getting sponsored by them, but this weekend, see, last weekend, I really, 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 really wanted to go and do a snow climb, and I've never climbed in the snow, so a snow climb is a Manitou incline ascent in the snow, um, and, and so um, I'm probably going to go end up doing that this weekend if we get snow. I'm super stoked about it. Getting outside really helps me decompress. And obviously, leaning on those support figures in my life. Um, I have learned to stop being bashful about asking for help. Uh, you don't know who's willing to help unless you ask. And people can't help you unless you say something. Um, so reaching out is a big Help. Absolutely. I think that's that's a, a huge thing even with, you know, the mental health side is it's a, it's a double-edged sword. People have to be looking out. People have to be wanting to help. And I think there's a lot of people that are. They, they just need direction. And then, you know, we need to create an environment where people feel comfortable you know, reaching out, whether it's asking for equipment for a climb or whether it's asking for help because they're chronically depressed. Yep. It, it goes... Uh with anything you can think of, you know, as a bilateral for a really long time, I was embarrassed to ask anybody to like take out my trash. 
because uh, it's just one of those little pride things like, yes, I can take this bag of trash down four flights of stairs through the elevator and all the way around the building and it'll spill in the parking lot every day. (laughs) (laughs) Or just ask somebody for help, you know. Uh, And it's important to keep, and it's very difficult to keep in mind that even in those darkest moments where you feel like there is absolutely no coming back from this, um, it is probably more important than to try to remember that every moment is different and it's going to be a little different in five moments. It's going to be a little more different in 10 moments, but you have to give yourself time and let yourself feel through those things to get to feeling better. Um, Nobody is going to be able to pick you up out of a depression and say, here's your happy juice. Uh, everything is going to be great for you from now on. Um, life doesn't work like that. But I can definitely tell you that if you let those moments pass and you focus on finding yourself, you will be much more rooted in your future. Beautiful. Perfect. Well, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more about you, if they want to find you on social media, where are the best places online to do that? Online, you can find me at www.mandyhorvath.com. That's H-O-R-V as in Victor, A-T-H. Or you can search me on Instagram and follow at lifeproofbionicwoman. Or you can find me on Facebook at Life Proof Mandy Horvath or just my regular page, Mandy Horvath. I'm not very good at updating the additional public speaker page on Facebook just because I have too many platforms. Yeah. <laughs> I am one person and uh, I have two appendages. So <laughs> that's there, my excuse. There you go, I'm making excuses again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I'm going to fall short somewhere, I think I'm okay with it being on a silly Facebook page. So, I agree. I have next to no interaction on my Facebook pages either. It's, it's almost a complete waste of time, but I keep it just so that people can communicate through it. But I find it not really worth the energy that it requires. So, um, Well, I just want to say, firstly, I'm, I'm hoping that you get great news in April. And if you don't, then it's not if it's, you know, it's not... Um, yeah, if it's when, trying to find out the right phrase then. Um, but I just want to say thank you. I mean, we've been talking well over two and a half hours now. You shared some very intimate, you know, stories with us that took a lot of courage. And, you know, I hate the fact that it requires that person to revisit it. But I know there are so many people out there that are going through a similar thing. And I know just this one conversation is going to have such a positive effect. So I just want to thank you so much for having the courage to tell your story today be so generous with your time telling your story um and uh i'm definitely you know looking forward to us meeting face to face when you do get back over to florida well thank you i really appreciate you having patience to uh let my crazy schedule kind of die down a bit so that we can make this happen uh it's been great talking to you and thanks for listening i guess (laughs) (laughs) i realized we had rambled on for 
that long, but, um, you know, I guess such is life whenever you're talking about a complex story and trying to get all of the elements in the picture. Mm-hmm.